Amen. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Pete, Daniel, Lissa. Thank you guys for leading us in worship through song. Now we get to do worship through the word. Uh, don't make a mistake. This is still worship. The way that you listen to the word of God and the way that your heart receives the word of God is probably the most important part of your worship this morning. And so before we start, I, I want to uh, just remind us where we're at. We've been talking about the ingredients of conversion. What does it look like when all the ingredients are present for a life to be completely transformed from death to life, from headed to hell to now headed to heaven? What does that look like when all of those components come together? And what does it look like when we try to add something to it or subtract something from it? And as an illustration, what we've been doing out in the lobby, you've, you've been participating with that. Last week, it was a, a soda taste test. This week, it was a smell test. And, and last week, Pastor Casey had uh, some brownie bites with cayenne pepper in them. And he was too afraid to taste them because he's a weenie baby. Uh, <laughs> but today, we've got a different taste test. And, uh, and I'll go ahead and participate with you because I'm not a weenie baby. Uh, let me just ask you guys to try this with me. Why don't you grab one of these? This is a normal version. Just have all of you participate with me here today. If we're all going down, we're going to go down together, right? <laughs> so that's our control. That's pretty good. Was that cinnamon, cinnamon bread? So I'm going to grab one here. All right, so now that we have a control, we're going to taste. I don't know if they added something to this or took something away from it, so we're going to try to figure that out. Oh, oh my gosh. What do you guys think they added to that? Because this is nasty. I, I think maybe, yeah, she said salt. I think there's no sugar and maybe some salt. Are we right on that? No sugar and salt. Thank you for that. That was terrible. I didn't. I didn't bring my water cup up here, so I'm going to go get it, because that is gross. Oh, my gosh. My, my dad always used to say that the old saying is not true, that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. All you got to do is rub salt up in his lips, and he'll drink all you want. Now, now that's where I'm at. Oh, thank you. Hey, take that, Casey. Oh, my goodness. I'm not doing a second surface. <laughs> oh, that isn't happening again. All right. Fool me once. Shame on me. Oh, man. All right. So today we're talking about the Apostle Paul and his conversion experience and what were the ingredients of Paul's conversion experience. And I want to focus specifically on one ingredient. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But, but before... I talk about the conversion of Paul, I want to introduce you to Paul. And I think the best way to introduce you to Paul is to let Paul introduce you uh, to himself. So in Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out his resume. Philippians 3, 4, and 6. I'll just read it to you really quickly. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I should have more confidence in the flesh because I've been circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, 
blameless. So let me break each of those down for you really quickly. So circumcised the eighth day. That means he belonged to the old covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember, God shows up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the sign of that covenant, one of the signs of that covenant is you need to circumcise yourself and all of your servants and all of your male children from now to infinity. And that was the sign of the old covenant. And so Paul says, look, I'm part of this old covenant that God made with Abraham. He also says, I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm one of God's chosen people. And not just one of God's chosen people. I'm from a very noble tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he's a devout worshiper of God. He takes this seriously. He is not just an Israelite. He's a devout Israelite. He's a worshiper of the one true God. Think about that. He's a worshiper of the one true God, and he's not saved. An example among men of how to have faith in God. He was excellent in his religion. He says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap because Jesus was really hard on them when he showed up. But being a Pharisee wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Being a Pharisee just meant you were a a religious leader, a very educated follower of the one true God. And Paul was from the city of Tarsus. Tarsus is one of the three great cities for education in the ancient world. It was right up there with Alexandria and Athens and Tarsus. Probably the, uh, the best comparison would be our Yale, Harvard, and Princeton, is how they would have thought about those areas in the ancient world. It was a very prestigious place to be from. It was a very important place to be from. You could get the best education in the ancient world from Tarsus. And he was also trained under Gamaliel. We find out in Acts 20, 22 that he was trained under Gamaliel, who was probably the president of the Sanhedrin, which was the greatest religious councils, the ones that assigned Jesus to be crucified. They pronounced that judgment on him. He may not have been the president, that's in dispute, but he was at least a senior leader of the Sanhedrin. And so Saul had the best education from the best teachers of the law. And as a Pharisee, he would have memorized the entire Old Testament. Think about that. He would have memorized the entire Old Testament and and talked about it with his buddies who also had memorized the entire Old Testament. And so they knew God's law. They knew God's law. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, I find this interesting that Paul chooses to list this on his resume, Because think about it from his point of view. He's a Pharisee. He's totally committed to God and the Israelite tradition. He's devout in his affection for God. And then this guy named Jesus shows up, and he claims to be the son of God, which is blasphemy of the highest sort. You don't just walk in somewhere and say, I'm the son of God. That is offensive to the one true God. Worse, he criticizes the Pharisees in public. And he demeans their authority. He undermines their devotion and their service of God. And then they put him to death and all of his followers start worshiping him instead of the one true God. This makes Saul very angry. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. It makes him very angry. These Christians are deceiving people. They have to be stopped. And so out of love for God and zeal for God's holiness and reputation, Saul rounds up these Christians to make an example of their rebellion. It's not unlike how the Israelites treated idol worshipers and priests when uh, Israel would finally get a king who would follow after God again. After years of rebellion, they would go and put everyone to death who followed 
that idol. And so he wasn't out of bounds in his mind. He considered that zeal for God to persecute the church. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. See, Paul kept the law, and he kept it well. He puts all of us to shame in how close he was to following the law of God. You could have found no fault in him. But this man, this God-worshipping, zealously religious man, the best of the best among the chosen people of God, this man was hopelessly lost and headed towards eternal destruction because he got one thing wrong. He didn't receive Jesus. He got it wrong with Jesus. When it came face to face with him and the Son of God, he botched it. He got it totally wrong. How many people come to church every Sunday and give money and do good deeds for our community and serve others and are a good neighbor and read their Bible and try to live a good life and are headed to an eternity separated from God in hell because they missed Jesus. They didn't get it. They had religion, but they didn't have Jesus. See, what you choose to do with the risen Christ is a life or death difference. Are you going to follow him and serve him and love him and give your all to him? Or are you going to kind of dress it up and make it look like that's what you're doing? See, See, Paul introduces himself in Philippians 3, and then he goes on one more verse later and says, but what those things back then that I was talking about, what things used to be gained to me, now I count them as loss for Christ. No longer do they go on the plus side of the list. He's listing out all the good things in his life and all the bad things in his life. All of those accomplishments he just listed, they don't belong on the good side anymore. They get moved over to the negative side. They're debts, they're detractions, they're hindrances to him not fully trusting on Christ and relying on his own strength instead. Now, what happened to Paul between verse 6 of Philippians 3 to verse 7? where he's this amazing best of the best religious person, to now he counts all of that as loss for the sake of Christ. What happened to take Saul and make him Paul? Today we're going to be talking about the ingredient of transformation. The ingredient of transformation. And if transformation is not present in your life, you're not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if Jesus doesn't change you. That's part of conversion. Conversion means I was going one way, Jesus turned me around, and now I'm going the other way. I was following me, and now I'm following Jesus. There will be transformation. I always like to say Jesus is too big to come and live inside of you and not stick out places. He's going to show up. He's too significant a figure to come into your life and not make a difference. It will happen. So let's look at how it happened for Paul. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, and we'll be, begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read the whole story here today of how Paul comes to know Jesus. Then Saul, he's not Paul yet, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if, if he found any were who, who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Paul, Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So let's now go through Paul's story and see how this transformation happened in him. So Saul is threatening Christians. He's dragging them out into the streets, men and women alike. He's a leader of this task force that's been assigned to go and knock, house, knock doors house to house and drag out anyone who claims the name of Jesus. He's been commissioned by the Pharisee leaders to quash this rebellion against God. Remember, they thought that they were serving God by doing this. Now, two chapters earlier... Saul has just put Stephen to death. The first Christian martyr is Stephen, and the scriptures tell us that those who stoned Stephen laid their coats at the feet of Saul. This is most likely because Saul was the one in charge of this execution. Chapter 8 tells us that Saul heartily approved of Stephen's murder. Now, to the early church, this guy was an absolute menace. He was the chief enemy of Christ and the gospel, and now he's requested letters from the high priest to go to Damascus and to do the same thing that he's been doing in Jerusalem in Damascus. Now, if most of us were Jesus, I think we would have struck Paul down dead in the middle of the road to Damascus. But thankfully for all of us, Jesus would much rather convert his enemies than destroy them. 
Jesus wants to bring his enemies onto his side. He's not interested in winning the argument. He wants to win the person. He wants to win the person. So there's several ingredients of Saul's conversion that I want to walk through really quickly, and then we're going to focus on one. First, he heard the gospel. Where did he hear the gospel? We didn't just read any gospel presentation in Acts chapter 9. Well, he heard the gospel two chapters earlier, because right before Stephen is stoned to death, he preaches the longest sermon in the New Testament, and he breaks down how this Jesus that they've crucified is the promised Messiah, and he has come, and they have killed him. He heard the gospel. He didn't receive it right away, but he heard it. Then in Acts chapter 9, finally he believes and is confessing Jesus as Lord. In Acts 9, 6, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? So not only is he saying, Jesus, you're Lord, he's saying, hey, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. In Acts chapter 9, again, in verse 18, he was baptized. We've talked about already how that's a key ingredient of conversion. It's not that it saves you. Baptism doesn't save you, but every Christian will react to being converted by wanting to have their sins washed away uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that is symbolized in baptism. It's our first step of obedience to Christ. When we get baptized, and in, the, in Acts, actually, they would just do it right away. You would get saved, they'd dunk you, and then, bam, you're good to go. It's like, this is the first way that we signify to everyone that I've decided that my life is different from here on out. Jesus has changed me, and I'm going to signify that immediately by being baptized. And Paul was. And then finally, he was changed. In Acts 20, 22, it says he immediately preached Christ. Didn't take him very long to swap from preaching against Christ to preaching for Christ. An amazing transformation, so amazing that all the people were astonished and saying, isn't this the same dude that was just killing all these people for doing this, what he's doing right now? And it says that he kept getting stronger and stronger, meaning that he kept getting more and more acquainted with the gospel, and he began to prove to everyone that Jesus was the Son of God. So he goes from denying that Jesus is the Son of God to saying Jesus is a blasphemer, and everyone who follows him is a blasphemer, to now he's proving himself that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in Acts 13, he gets his name changed, no longer does he go by Saul? Now he is Paul. Jesus totally transformed his life and changed his name. See, Saul was a murderer, but Paul was a missionary. Saul was a persecutor, but Paul was a pastor. Saul is the one who asked for letters of permission to go and arrest church leaders, but Paul is the one who writes letters of promise to encourage church leaders. Saul put people in prison for following Jesus. Paul gladly endured prison for following Jesus. Saul was the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, but Paul is living proof that no sinner is beyond the reach of their Savior. Saul stood by and approved the stoning of Stephen, and Paul was greeted by Stephen in heaven with joy. You ever think about that? Man, I like to imagine that the first person to greet Paul when he entered the pearly gates of heaven was Stephen saying, welcome, brother, welcome home, because Paul was the first answer to Stephen's last prayer. 
You ever think about that? This very last thing that Stephen ever says before he gives up the ghost and dies, being stoned to death, is, Father, don't hold this against them. Same as Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He echoes his Savior and says, don't, don't put this on their account. And now Jesus is coming to meet Saul on the road to Damascus, and he's not coming with judgment and condemnation. He's coming with the forgiveness that Stephen prayed for. Saul was the first answer to Stephen's last prayer. Oh, that we would have such love that like Jesus and like Stephen, we could look past the attacks and the persecutions that come our way, and instead of being offended or self-justified, we would sincerely hope and pray that the very ones who torment us would receive forgiveness from God. I want you to notice just a few things quickly about Saul's conversion here. First, he hears the gospel, but he's not convicted of his sin until he encounters a living Savior. He's on the road, fully intending to do more sinning, unaware of the judgment that's awaiting him if he continues in his ways. Then out of nowhere, the glorified Christ, shining bright like the sun, booms forth in Acts 9-4. Why are you persecuting me? Verse 7 says, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless because they could hear the voice, but they didn't see anyone. Notice, everybody heard the voice, but only Saul saw the light. The gospel could be preached over and over and over, and you can hear God calling out to you, come, come, let us reason together. If anyone's thirsty, let him come and drink. But until you encounter the glory of the risen Christ and his beauty and majesty knocks you off your feet, you'll never be converted. Also notice Jesus asks him a question, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus so identifies with his people in their suffering that he considers it a personal offense. If you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to who? You've done it to me. You've done it to Jesus. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He will be your defender. You are his. You are part of his bride. If you offend my wife, I'm going to take that personal. She's part of me. And so Jesus takes it personally, and he shows up in all of his glory, and he says, Saul, basically cut it out, right? Saul had an encounter with the living Christ. So notice, Saul isn't converted until he encounters a living Christ, but Saul isn't healed until he encounters a loving Christian. See, Jesus appears to Saul in a vision and tells him he's going to send Ananias To him, and then he appears to Ananias and tells him to go to Saul. Now, Ananias is concerned at first, rightfully so. He's like, Wait a minute, Jesus, isn't this the guy that came here to put all of us in prison? Now you're telling me to to go to him? Like, that sounds like I'm walking right into a trap. But he obeys. Notice, conversion takes the obedience of two people takes the obedience of the person whom God is calling to be saved and the obedience of the person who God is calling to go share. You have to have have two people obeying for conversion to take place. Now listen to how Paul gets healed. Acts 9.17, it says, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, so the same Jesus who struck you blind, has sent me so that you may receive your sight. I love this saying, the hand that wounded now heals. What he's saying is Jesus' intent wasn't to leave you blind. Jesus' final intent wasn't to blind your eyes, but to dazzle them 
with his glory. He's not intending to leave you in this wounded state, but he will strengthen you and make you fit for service in the regimen of the King of Kings. Now, I also want you to notice who Jesus sends to Paul, not Peter or another apostle, not Philip the evangelist, simply a faithful Christian man from Damascus, Ananias. The most significant figure in the New Testament other than Jesus Christ himself was baptized by an ordinary Christian that we never hear of again outside of this story. I wonder what great things does God want to do through the people who come to Jesus as a result of your faithfulness. What great things might God want to do through the people who come to Jesus as a result of your faithfulness? As Paul is nearing the end of, this, of his life, he writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Remember, this is the same Paul who used to boast in his accomplishments, who loved his religion, who was trusting in his law-keeping to grant him access to God. Now he looks back at that former life and he realizes, like all of us, he was a rebellious sinner, hating Jesus and shunning grace. But then Jesus met him where he was, not with judgment, not with wrath, with love and forgiveness and healing, and Saul was transformed. And he expects that that ingredient of transformation will be present in every conversion. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know, this is Paul writing this now, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are not that way anymore. You have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, because when Jesus shows up on your Damascus road and claims you as his own, there will be a change. There will be a transformation. And so I have two questions for you this morning. As we look at the example of Paul and how Jesus took him from blindness to sight, spiritually and then physically, he images that for us in Paul's conversion. Paul was spiritually blind. He didn't get it. He didn't understand that the resurrected Christ was actually the Son of God. He thought he was following the one true God. He didn't understand. He was blind. And Jesus changed his life and transformed him. And he transformed him so completely that everything was different. Not just one thing, not just one part of his life. His whole life was completely transformed. So I have a question for you. If somebody picked an area of your life at random, any area, finances, time, your kids, what you watch when nobody's around, what you do on the internet, if they picked any area of your life at random, would they see evidence of transformation there? Just one area. Just at random, if you, if you put every area of your life in a bowl and I picked one out, would I see that that area of your life has been transformed by Jesus? See, Jesus didn't come to save part of you. He wants all of you 
And so are there areas of your heart that you simply won't surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ? So the second question I have for you is, what part of your life do you need to surrender to the lordship of Jesus today? And you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, and he's put something in your mind and on your heart. I know he does for me every time I ask this question. I know what area of my life I'm not willing to surrender to Jesus. I know what area of my life is still untransformed. And I know what areas of my life have been somewhat transformed, but not completely. And so this song came to me as I was going through this message. And, and right at the end yesterday, I just added it in. I changed, changed the order of the service and everything because this song fits so well with what I'm talking about today. And we're done after this. We'll be dismissed after this. And so what I want you to do with this last few moments of this service is to go inside of your heart. And as I sing this song, walk from room to room, door to door, inside of your heart, and say, is that the room that I haven't let Jesus in yet to clean out? And if it is, I want you to give him the key this morning. I want you to give him the key. My heart is like a house. One day I let the Savior in. There are many rooms we would visit now and then. Then one day he saw that door. I knew the day had come too soon. I said, Jesus, I'm not ready for us to visit in that room. Cause that's a place in my heart where even I don't go. I have some things hidden there. I don't want no one to know. But he handed me the key with tears of love on his face. He said, I want to make you clean. Let me go in your secret place. So I opened up the door. And the two of us walked in. And I was so ashamed. His light revealed my hidden sin. But when I think about that room now, I'm not afraid anymore because my hidden sin no longer hides behind the door. It was a place in my heart 
where even I wouldn't go. I had some things hidden there. I didn't want no one to know. But he handed me the key. With tears of love on his face. He said, I'm going to make you clean. Let me go in your secret place. Is there a place in your heart where even you won't go? You have some things hidden there that you don't want no one to know. But he's handing you the key with tears of love on his face, and he'll make you clean. Let him in your secret place. God, we know that that's what you want for all of us. You want nothing held back. And there's parts of my life, God, that I still haven't fully given to you. I've been a Christian over 20 years. You're still working on me, and that's okay. You want to make us clean. You want to transform us. You want it to be so that if someone looks at our life, any part of our life, they'll see evidence of you there. But God, I know represented in this room, there are addictions. There are hidden secret sins. There are skeletons in the closet that people would be so ashamed if anybody ever found out. The truth is, God, you already know. You know what's behind the door, but you're just waiting for us to confess it to you so that the healing can begin. So God, I pray that each and every one of us this morning would not leave this place without finding someone, confessing that hidden sin so that there's accountability there, so that there's love and forgiveness that can begin there, and hope for a better tomorrow where we look more like Jesus. God, let us aspire to be like Paul who would say so boldly, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. Let us imitate Paul's complete, total transformation and give everything we have to Jesus. It's in his glorious and beautiful and precious, light-filled name that we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. I love you.